0: Renewables, I think, are going to be a long-time feature and a long-time growth trend, but as far as the oil majors go, of course, they've been notorious for denying climate change and they've even lobbied actively against uh, efforts to mitigate it, but some, I think, are finally seeing the light, but maybe not all of them. I'm Chris Hill, and that was Motley Fool Senior Analyst Jim Mueller. This year, Warren Buffett has increased his stake in energy investments by billions. Those of us with a little less cash may be wondering if this is a place to start adding. Today, Jim is joined by Nick Seipel to talk about the connection between oil and gas prices, how major oil companies are investing in renewables, and how investors like us can think about allocation in this very cyclical industry.
1: In 2020, oil futures plunged into negative territory. However, in 2021, energy was the top-performing sector in the S&P 500 by far, and energy has exceeded that performance so far in 2022. Here's a beginner's guide to investing in energy if you're eyeing those returns, maybe if you're trying to copy Warren Buffett or if you're looking for a safe haven amid today's market volatility. I'm Nick Seipel here today with Jim Mueller. Jim, how are you doing?
0: How are you doing, Nick? I'm glad to be here.
1: Great to be back here with you as well here on the podcast. Jim, you know, as someone who, who follows the markets, you talk to our, our members regularly on The Morning Show. Are you seeing a lot of newfound interest from investors in the energy sector and energy stocks in general?
0: Not really. Actually, most of what I'm hearing is concern about the, the downdraft in the markets and, and the holdings. Uh, people aren't really paying attention much to the energy sector, and that's that's kind of too bad, I think.
1: You know, as someone who hosted the industry focus energy show for uh, a number of years, I think it's too bad as well. And I think, you know, there's certainly some opportunities there uh, in the energy market. I certainly own some energy stocks um, in my portfolio. But, Jim, when we're talking about the energy sector, and I just quoted those high flying returns earlier in the intro, what are we really talking about uh, when we're talking about the energy sector?
0: It's uh, traditionally been oil and gas. And uh, that means drilling and refining and piping and sending oil and gas all over the world and doing what we do with it. So we're talking the energy majors, of course, BP, ExxonMobil, Royal Dutch Shell. We're talking uh, pipeline companies like Kinder Morgan and Brookfield Asset Management. We're talking all kinds of things like that. But you're not really including in in energy sector the renewables. And that's where I tend to focus more often than not.
1: Yeah, so if you think about renewable companies, if you think about solar panels, traditionally that's going to be in the tech sector right. um, of the S&P 500, but when you hear the energy sector quoted, that's, you know, it's oil and gas companies at the end of the day. So Jim mentioned the big integrated oil majors, your Exxon's and your Chevron's of the world. And then, you know, if you get more specific into those companies, you usually hear them quoted as the different streams. So you think about the streams of a river, you've got upstream, you know, the top of the mountain where the river starts, midstream where it's kind of flowing through the middle of the country, and then downstream where it ends up, you know, kind of in, in the ocean. Well, in the in the the, the version of of the oil and gas. Universe. You've got the upstream, which is the exploration and production companies, the folks who are uh, pulling the oil out of the ground. You've got, um, and it also includes the service companies who are doing work for those uh, energy those exploration and production companies to actually, you know, drill the holes and put the bits in the ground and that sort of thing. Then you've got the midstreams. Those are the pipeline companies that Jim mentioned earlier. Think about companies like Kinder Morgan and One Oak. Those are the ones that actually take it. It comes from the well, it goes into the pipe, and then it goes to the customer. And then you've got the downstream part of the market, which is refining or you know the, the, the pumps, those sorts of things the folks that take the oil and gas um, and turn it into final products so whether that's gasoline or jet fuel or uh, fertilizers, those sorts of things uh, that's that's the downstream part of the market. okay Jim so we've talked about what oil and gas companies are um, now let's talk about what what drives these businesses. Again, off the top, I talked about this incredible performance we've seen so far this year, and that performance has come in line with a huge surge in oil and gas prices. Whether it's natural gas hitting multi year highs, oil peaked out over one hundred and thirty dollars, has since come back. Um, come back. How does uh, those moves and those underlying commodity prices impact those businesses that we've talked about?
0: Well they certainly impact the the stock prices. The stock prices are highly correlated with with the price of oil and gas. You'll see companies like Chevron and, and BP their stock prices will go up when the uh, the price of oil goes up and that's because investors and uh, Wall Street is expecting that as the price goes up they'll start drilling more they'll start uh, producing more and and start selling more of that oil and therefore their revenues will go up and their earnings and cash flows will go up and so that's that's why their share price rises with the uh, with the price of oil
1: right so, so as I mentioned earlier the, those different streams of, of the oil and gas market traditionally the ones that are most levered uh, to the oil and gas price are are those those upstream, those E&P companies, the ones that are actually touching the commodity at the end of the day. Obviously, they get the full benefit of the increase in in price um, of that commodity. But one of the areas that, that we've seen, a lot of folks have seen an increase in price is at the pump, and that's in the downstream part of the market. So Even as uh, overall, oil prices have declined somewhat from that $130 high I mentioned earlier uh, in early March. Uh, this, the price of gasoline has continued to surge up and up, hitting new records on a daily basis, according to AAA. Uh, for the first time, gasoline prices are above $4 a gallon in every state of the nation. Jim, if gas, if oil prices are so far off their peaks, why do we see gasoline prices continue to rise?
0: Well. It- Oil is only a small component of the of the gas price. There's the refining cost of that you have to include. There's the support of the gas station, of course. Uh, they have to they have to make a small profit, and so and and then they are always buying and setting their prices based on what they're going to be delivered next. And as that as those prices stay high, the gas prices, even though the oil price falls, the gasoline price doesn't always fall uh, as quickly, and it, it's. A lot of uh, supply and demand, but it's also a lot of uh, expectations for the future. That is what's being priced into that.
1: Yeah, I think that there's a few factors that are kind of coming together to create. uh, Charlie Munger would say it's a lollapalooza effect. So, so number one, pandemic ending, we're coming back, returning to traditional travel, those sorts of things. Demand moving up. As well, uh, during the pandemic, uh, it's just since 2019, the overall refining capacity in the U.S. is down something like five percent or so. So you have a, a decline in supply uh, in conjunction with an increase in demand. That's a recipe for higher prices. But you throw on top of that what's going on uh, with the Russia and Ukraine, a uh, war, and how that's impacting prices. You're seeing significant increases in demand for U.S. exports of refined products, whether it's gasoline or diesel, those sorts of things. Also, Russia is a big producer. Uh, of, of refined products and also a big uh, producer of some of the supplies that go into to making some of those products, and that that's impacting the market. And lastly, you see some some inter, interrelation as well, and that refineries are are very energy intensive uh, beasts. And as energy prices surge in Europe, that makes it more difficult uh, to make refined products there. So a number of those things coming together to to make supply extra uh, extra contracted than it would have been otherwise.
0: And another thing is the uh, the choice of what the refiners are the refineries are making. I mean, gasoline is made from I believe the basically the same kind of oil as as uh, airplane fuel and jet fuel. And so there's been a lot of growth in the the airplane industry. Flights are coming back, people are traveling more, as you said, and uh, so the refiners are making a lot more of the jet fuel at the cost of making not as, not as much as the diesel and the gasoline, and so that affects the supply of the, of the latter two, which is also helping to push prices up.
1: Yep, so so I mean the short answer to the question is gasoline and oil are different products even though we traditionally hear them quoted together just like how you make cakes from uh from flour, flour and cakes there's different markets for those two products. That's kind of what's going on um in, in the gasoline um and oil market. And we'll see how long it takes to bring new refinery capacity online and or demand to adjust, but until that uh that happens, we're seeing refiners put up record Margins and doesn't appear likely to slow down anytime soon. The last thing I would I would mention as well is so Javier Blas, great follow on Twitter. He's a Bloomberg reporter. Put out just today on Wednesday. If you look at you know the refineries in the Gulf of Mexico, they're running at 97. 0.4% 0.4 uh, percent of capacity in the last week, which is the highest level it's run uh, for this period of the year in the last 30 years of historical data. So, you know, for the capacity that we have in, in place, the refineries are doing the best we can. But there's a misalignment of, of supply and demand, and you can't, you know, go out and, and print more refineries. It takes time uh, to, to to correct that. Uh, to correct that, and, and one of the ways that, uh, that the market corrects that is to raise the price in order to lower demand.
0: Right. So, it's not like flipping on a switch. You can't flip a switch, and all of a sudden, you're producing more oil and sending it to the refiners, and they're producing more gasoline. It takes a while to drill. It's, it takes a while to uh, restart wells that have been uh, turned off. And it certainly takes a long time to uh, to probe what's underneath there and find the correct spots to drill uh, for new wells. And so, uh, unfortunately... The, the exploration and production companies, the E&Ps, they can't just be told to, oh, start producing next week. And no, it doesn't happen that way. It, it, it takes a couple of years for that, for that stuff to flow
1: through. Okay, Jim, so we talk about this misalignment in, in supply and demand, that the surge in prices um, that we've seen in, in, in products, as well as um, in the underlying oil and gas stocks, what would you say to an investor that's looking at some of those returns today, looking at conditions in the market, and is considering an investment? Do you think about these companies as a dividend play, or do you think about now as maybe a time to lay off the market and look for other places to invest?
0: It could be a good time. If the oil prices stay up and elevated and supply remains constrained, then yeah, they, the the big energy companies uh, could be a decent place to park your money. But if, for instance, the war in Ukraine uh, ends fairly soon, then that's going pr- uh, that could potentially free up a bunch of uh, oil to come back out of Russia. Uh, and if the uh, production in the U.S. starts to ramp up and start pushing the price of the oil down, then you might want to pull back from it. Now, the problem with these companies is that they're cyclical, and counterintuitively, you might want to sell them when the P.E. is low, and there's and they've got a lot of earnings uh, relative to their price, and then buy them when their P.E. is high, because then that means they have just a little bit of earnings, they're not selling much, and so the expectation is that they'll start to sell more and drive up their earnings again. As dividend plays, uh, yeah, they're often used as... Uh, uh, sources of uh, dividend income. If things get really bad, they might start uh, cutting their dividend, uh, but that may or may not be in the cards. So, as a dividend play, probably relatively safe, I think.
1: Yeah, I'll tell you for myself personally, I own a fair bit of oil and gas stocks in my portfolio. And part of the reasoning behind that is I think the cycle that we're in will be relatively extended. The last time we saw a big surge up in oil and gas prices, the shale boom was waiting in the wings to really pour a lot of additional supply onto the market. And I think today there's not a shale industry out there to add a bunch of marginal barrels. And I think. Because of the nature of the shale industry, you've seen the 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 cycles at at which folks invest in oil and gas become much more short term. Because of the short term kind of turnaround um, of shale investing, so but one of the the negatives of that is that uh, those. Long, long-term projects. Think about um, think about offshore; those sorts of things. While it takes a long time and a lot of investment to get them up and running, they produce for a long, long period of time at steady rates of uh, of production. Um, and so we're in this in this period where the place where dollars are, are, are surging in the market can bring on production quickly. But I think that this kind of misalignment in supply and demand is more of a longer-term problem. And to truly fix it with marginal new supply, will really need some of the, more of these longer-cycle investments. To take place, and uh, to make that happen, the prices need to remain higher for longer. And so uh, that's what I think is going to happen. That that that's how I'm invested. But you have to believe in the, in the, in the cycle being relatively extended uh, to invest today. If you think you're going to see a whole bunch of shale investment snap back on, like we saw maybe in the the latter half of the the 2010s, whenever prices move back up, then you're going to get the rug pulled on you. And so you really. Um, you need to have an opinion about uh, about what this cycle looks like. Talking about opinions on the future and, and looking to the future, wh- one of the areas that I think a lot of po- folks are, are focused on as a, as a potential opportunity is is we're seeing these high energy prices, what opportunity does this create for an energy transition? And Jim, I know that's an area that you spend some time on, looking at, uh, at opportunities in the renewable energy space. And One of the areas maybe we wanted to talk about a little bit is what you're seeing uh, from traditional energy companies uh, in renewable energy. Do you think these companies have a meaningful strategy, or, or is it more just window dressing to hide uh, the core business, which is oil and gas?
0: Well, I certainly hope it's a lot more than window dressing. Because, in order to get temperature change and climate change under control, we do need to move away from a lot of the the use of fossil fuels as an energy source. Because pumping carbon dioxide into the into the atmosphere is not the way we want to move forward. I'll come back to uh, how the uh, the big oil companies are dealing with this, but I just want to put some uh, perspective onto this. We've heard stories of all the growth in solar and wind, and and you might think that we're, we're pretty much there, but that's not the case. There's a lot more investment that needs to be done, and and, and even the big oil ma- majors are beginning to accept that and move towards that. I'll talk about BP in just a moment on that. To put this in perspective how big the issue is, how much energy the world actually uses, in 2020, the entire global production of energy from solar and wind was enough to supply the energy needs of all the homes in the U.S., Germany, France, Great Britain, and most of Austria. That leaves out the rest of Europe, the rest of North America, and all the rest of the world, Africa, South America, et cetera, et cetera, Asia. Let's not forget Asia. Uh, And that's just for residential use. But residential use is only a small fraction of the total amount used on the planet, about 7.5%. The rest supplies uh, industry, agriculture, and transportation. Iron and steel production, by itself, is four times the amount of residential use. So, there's not nearly enough uh, solar and wind and other renewables uh, to supply all that, which is why fossil fuels has has remained a major supplier of the world's energy. and fairly constant supplier at 80% of the total consumed over the past decade. It hasn't really moved very much. Uh, and then, there's all kinds of other uh, factors that play into this, uh, such as getting a country to switch. In India, for example, solar electricity is cheaper than coal electricity by a fair amount, but India is not moving that way, that's not going all in. And that's because the, the profits of a very large industry in India, railroads, depends upon shipping coal around. And so, if India goes all in on solar, they hurt a, a major industry in their, in their economy. For the U.S., there's uh, transmitting energy from uh, where it's produced, uh, winds in the Midwest and solar down in the South, to where it's needed all over the country. And Getting that electricity moved around the country is pretty difficult because the way our our system is set up, states and even local municipalities have a lot of power. And as the energy goes across the state lines, you have to negotiate with different uh, regulatory bodies and maybe even follow different rules. And that throws up a lot of delay and expense into the equation. So... Renewables, I think, are going to be a long-time feature and a long-time growth trend, but as far as the oil majors go, of course, they've been notorious for denying climate change has been around for a long time, and they've even lobbied actively against uh, efforts to mitigate it, but some, I think, are finally seeing the light, but maybe not all of them. Uh, I found a study that, uh, a recent study that was published that looked at data through 2020, and that looked at BP, Shell, ExxonMobil and Chevron. So two American and two European majors. And there's only a couple of others that are big, but these, these are the, uh, could arguably be called the four biggest. And while all of them have been saying for years that uh, you, they, they're gonna be getting into renewables any day now, yada, yada, we're, we're investing this, or we promise to invest that, BP and Shell were the only two that really seemed to be acting on the promises. Chevron and Exxon say a lot, but don't do very much, at least, as, at least through 2020. For instance, uh, BP, in 2020, they made some uh, big moves with their new CEO about moving, uh, big announcements, I should say, about moving towards renewable energy. In 2020, they said, by 2030, we want to have 50 gigawatts of renewable energy on our books that, that we own, and up from just 2.5, so that's a uh, the previous year in 2019, so that's a 20-fold increase. Well, they just reported their first quarter, and they now have 25 gigawatts, so they're halfway there. Uh, So they are actually moving towards that. Uh, Another one of their goals, uh, they said they wanted to have like seventy thousand electric vehicle charging points by I think the same deadline, twenty thirty. And they just announced a a joint venture with Volkswagen to open eight thousand more uh, by the end of twenty twenty four. So they're they're making actual progress, and they're getting more into uh, hydrogen production and green hydrogen. Green hydrogen, well, hydrogen production is made from splitting water into hydrogen and oxygen, and it takes energy to do that. And if you're using coal or oil, uh, electricity to do that, you're, you're just kind of transferring the the carbon effect from one fuel to another. But if you're using excess solar or excess nuclear power or excess uh uh, hydro or wind power, all the green energy, the renewable energies. Then you get what's called green hydrogen, and then the green hydrogen can feed into things like industry. It can be burned to heat, and uh, during the smelting of iron ore to, uh, to make steel, and and so you end up with something called green steel. And uh, cement making requires a lot of heat, and so uh, if you can do if you can grow that more, then you're you're doing pretty well. Uh, but BP is is definitely moving in that direction and investing serious dollars and making serious moves into that. That so of the of those four, I would I'd look at BP first, and and it still benefits, of course, from from its uh, oil and gas side.
1: Yeah, well, I see one one area that I think is is the most interesting for me. If you're talking about traditional oil and gas companies investing in you know green or, or for renewable fuels is is renewable diesel. So, you talk about how how green hydrogen is where basically you make hydrogen, but you make it in a way that is cleaner than than has been the traditional method. Renewable diesel is a similar thing. So A lot of people are probably familiar with biodiesel. Renewable diesel and biodiesel are not the same thing. Biodiesel has to be blended with traditional diesel to run in engines, and it also tends to be more corrosive uh, than traditional diesel. Uh, Renewable diesel is chemically identical uh, to traditional diesel, except it is made with either Cooking oil, or in some cases, they'll use virgin canola oil or uh, soybean oil; those p- sorts of products. And we'll come back to that later. So, this renewable diesel area is a sector we've seen tons and tons of investment, um, or at least announcements, in the past couple of years from from large uh, traditional energy companies. So, just a few few examples: Kinder Morgan, uh, Marathon Petroleum, Phillips Sixty Six, Exxon, Chevron. Um, uh, all, all of these companies have. have Announced significant plans uh, to build renewable diesel plants. Obviously, one of the the big areas we're seeing shortages today, as we talked about earlier, was refined products, and they're very, very acute um, in the diesel market. So there is a there is a, a a serious demand for for these these types of products. But the company that I find most interesting to invest in renewable diesel is not an energy company. It wouldn't have it doesn't end up in that uh, in that energy sector that we talked about earlier. And it's a company called Darling Ingredients. So Darling Ingredients um, is a company that's been around since the 19th century, and is the largest provider of rendering, recycling, and recovery solutions to the nation's food industry. It's a very exciting business where they process more than 15 million metric tons of the world's available slaughtered animal byproducts, or about 15% of the world supply. Why is this this business interesting? Um, well in addition uh, to this business that they have kind of processing animal byproducts and uh, and also collecting used cooking oil, they have a 50-50 joint venture with Valero, which is one of the nation the nation's largest refiners and that uh, 50-50 joint venture is is called Diamond Green Diesel is the largest producer of renewable diesel in North America. In the year 2022, they're going to produce 750 million gallons of renewable diesel at $1.25 per barrel EBITDA margin. If you look at the business's valuation today, it's at the low end of its historical range. And at the back end of 2022, they're going to turn on another significant extension of their renewable diesel plants. I mentioned earlier that there's a lot of competing renewable diesel facilities coming online trying to take advantage um, of some government tax credits to, to favor these types of fuels I would argue that there's probably more incentive for the government to pass those tax credits today than there were a couple of years ago but th- but that's besides the point um, a lot of these facilities are going to be fighting for feedstocks to uh, to, to make this renewable diesel and one of those um, And a lot of these facilities are reliant upon virgin oils, so so kind of virgin seed oils like canola and 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 soybean oil. Well, if you if you've looked at anything in the uh, the price of fertilizer or the price of of commodities, those those uh those prices are up significantly. And there's actually been some pushback on on using those types of products for renewable diesel. Where Darling has an advantage, though, is Darling controls something like uh it's like forty percent of the supply of feedstocks um in North America that's kind of used cooking oil that goes into Renewable diesels. So they have an advantage in feedstock pricing relative to other folks on the market. And they're also have been doing, have been in this business significantly longer than other folks on the market. So at the low end of its historical valuation, with some more, with Arguably, more demand in the future um, than than there is today, and an expansion of their renewable diesel plant coming online. I'm excited about Darling. The other thing, uh, a couple other things to mention as well is they've made some investments uh, in, in Europe where they're processing animal waste and trash waste to produce fertilizer. Obviously, fertilizer very much in demand, particularly in Europe today. They also have made some investments in kind of the biodigestion business. So this is the business where you take kind of trash and you you apply some enzymes and that sort of thing and you pull out what's called renewable natural gas, methane that you can use for power applications. So uh, a lot of these these businesses that they're in, which is taking trash and taking the, the byproducts from that trash and selling it for something useful, those byproducts are more and more useful today than they were yesterday. And it behooves governments more and more to kind of incentivize what they do than it would have a year ago or, or five years ago.
0: I love that idea. It's 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 a non-traditional way to get into a traditional idea. Uh, it's, that's awesome.
1: OK, Jim, last question. We talked a little bit about how uh, to maybe get some green exposure into traditional energy sectors. If you're looking, pure play, green energy, renewable energy, where are you looking and why?
0: You can uh, do this in many different ways. Uh, You can look into companies that are pure plays, uh, such as TPI Composites. They build the wind blades that uh, uh, are used in the wind turbines, and their customers are are build uh, thirty-four percent of the onshore global market and eighty-nine percent of the U.S. onshore market, and so. They're the makers of the blades, and so that's one way to get into it. Another way to get into, into it is uh, companies that build renew- the renewable energy power plants, the dams, the solar farms, the wind farms. Uh, uh, you might look at a company like Brookfield Renewable, which is part of the big Brookfield Asset uh, Management uh, conglomerate, but is a separate entity within that. Or you can invest indirectly. I mean, you don't have to buy just the the in uh the the pure plays you could look at Tectronic industries and they they sell power tools okay and you've probably heard of their brands hoover dirt devil for appliances but milwaukee and Ryobi are their big power tool brands and those are uh anything from drills to pneumatic cement uh whatever the, the pneumatic cement breaker upper thing <laughs> I, I think you know what i mean and they're they're making a lot more of those uh Battery powered and, and electrical, and so that uh, is indirectly benefiting the uh, the renewable energy by by not needing as much uh, uh, oil and gas to run and. Uh, Benefiting for the uh, growth of renewable electricity, so there there are several different ways to get into this. Uh, as far as an allocation, it depends on on whether on how much you want into in in your portfolio. I mean, I, w- I would probably keep it from moderate. I certainly would not go all in on these because uh, if you've looked at the prices over the last several months, when uh, the Build Back Better uh, program in the United States was being talked about, uh, the prices of a lot of these renewables went up in anticipation of a lot of funding coming through. And then when that didn't pass, their prices went screaming down uh, when the funding didn't go through. So, uh, if if you go into these, go into them with a long term mindset. I think this is a multi year, even a multi decade, uh, a trend that these companies can take advantage of. So, I, w- I would not go all in on these, but keep them a, a moderate size position, uh, maybe a few percentage points in your in your portfolio.
1: Jim, thanks for spending this time with me. It's great to be back uh, in podcast world with you.
0: <laughs> thanks, Nick. I enjoyed it.